Bernard Margolis is the president of the Boston Public Library. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's my great pleasure and honor to be with you today. Perhaps we could start off with the history of the Boston Public Library because that's as much as anything what makes this place so uh, renowned and uh, unique. Well, we certainly have an amazingly rich history that even as old as we are, we're learning new things about every day. And we actually recently made a, a fascinating discovery uh, that uh, is very appropriate to our history. We used to say publicly that we actually first began in 1657 when Captain Robert Keene, who was the first captain of the ancient and honorable artillery in the town of Boston, uh, passed away and left to the town his estate. And during his life, Captain Keene was a little bit of a scoundrel, but he redeemed himself uh, because his will really created him as the first American philanthropist. And among other things, he left to the town of Boston 300 pounds to establish a library and gallery. That and 300 pounds back then was... Was a lot of money, but it wasn't enough so that the town fathers, and with all due respect, they were all fathers, decided in the great American and Boston tradition that they had to take up a collection. And so they raised another 300 pounds to match the amount left in the bequest. And with 600 pounds, they built in 1657 the first library that was, I think, about 65 feet long and 35 feet wide. The first library in the United States. In America, yes. So that's our roots. Uh, we actually have a book. That, that library burned to the ground in 1711. Uh, but we have a book in our collection today that survived that fire. So we sort of have historically looked to that past uh, as our beginnings. But it's interesting how fires figure so large in American sort of bibliographical history. Because fire Jefferson, there, yes. Yes, very, very sadly yeah. Yeah. Uh, have become sort of uh, mileposts in terms of library work. But, but recently we have discovered something new, and that is that there apparently was a library in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in about 1628, quite a few years earlier. And we found this in our own records. We, the Massachusetts Bay Colony established in 1620, kept records, very, uh, really significant, detailed, handwritten records of their activities, particularly the activities of what was called the court, which today would be the general court, our state legislature. And the court records, uh, of course, this was before carbon paper, before copy machines. It was the habit after some years, the original records usually got you know, tattered and had been used and consulted, that they would make a copy of them. In a, in a kind of a ledger book. Yes. Yeah. And we have a copy book of the records of the general court of the Bay Colony that start in 1628 and go to 1645. And I believe this copy was made in 1645 of all those past records. And staff were reviewing this and found an entry in 1628 that showed a donation from someone in Britain desirous and planning on sending eight books to the colony 
as a gift for its residents. Eight? Eight books. Okay. And we've done some checking, and in fact, while we don't know if it is those same, the identical copies of those, but we've identified six of those eight books in our own collection. A couple of which we think it's a good chance may in fact have been those first books sent from England to the Massachusetts Bay Colony for the use of the residents of the colony. And obviously we're doing work to identify the other two, uh, but this would have been clearly the first, as we know of it, public library in America. Sorry, you talk about the Bay. Is that the same as the Bay Psalm book? Well, the the Bay Psalm book is named for Massachusetts Bay, Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is what we were named in those early years. The the Bay Psalm book was the first book printed in America, and there are 11 of them in existence, and two of those copies are in our, uh, held in our collections. And if they ever went on the public market, they'd be enormously expensive, but uh, they're not. They're all in institutions, right? That's right, and, and they should be. I mean, they're, they're the kind of patrimony that we need to be celebrating. Not and sharing. Yeah. And sharing, exactly. So the rich history of the library, I guess to sort of complete the circle of the, of the story of our history, is really an amazing and remarkable one that goes way back. Now, the library from 1711, when the Great Fire destroyed the library that I talked about earlier is a little checkered and we know that there was a library and we know that the aldermen funded it in various stages and we know that it moved around but it wasn't a library as we know a library today. Today's library, both the Boston Public Library and our general concept of public libraries really began in the late 1830s, 1840s when a very important man in the history of libraries who no one knows came to visit America from France. His name was Alexander Vatimar, and he was a French ventriloquist. Now, it usually brings a lot of chuckles when I tell people that the modern Boston Public Library was invented by a French ventriloquist, but it is the truth. Alexander Vatimar had performed throughout Europe in front of over 40 heads of state, traveled to Russia. He had really been the star of his day. Of course, before television, before any of the kinds of entertainments that we know today, stage performances were how people were entertained. Well, Dickens, for example. Dickens, yes, yes. So, Vatimar was very good at his ventriloquism, but he clearly had grown, I would say, bored with it. And in his travels, he had realized that the world needed some improvements. He had seen war in his time. He had seen uh, conflicts between nations. And he was convinced, very simply, the concept is really so simple, that the world would be improved if people exchanged books. It is such a simple idea. It's such a pure idea. Countries, if countries Countries as well as people from cities and towns. Mm. And Mm. he actually wrote a book called The Exchange of Books. And he sort of went on the road, and his and his his trips, his first trips to America were designed to really mesmerize people around the idea of the modern public library, the the interlibrary loan. Get books from places, share them, loan them to the public, at no cost. Make it free. Make it accessible. Ignore people's class. Ignore all the other things that separate us. 
what was going on before that then? Weren't the libraries doing that in any case? I think before that, at least in Boston, we had a whole slew of very active private libraries, membership libraries. So you had to pay? You had to pay. Okay. So in other words, the elite... This was a new idea, the idea, at least new in modern times, that a library was a public good designed for all of us to contribute and all of us to benefit from. Right above your door, it says, free to all. That's right, with great purpose, because that was one of his ideas. That was a founding principle. I thought it was Carnegie's idea, but I guess not. No, Carnegie came much later. Turn of the century. And some people ascribe it to Benjamin Franklin, but it wasn't his idea either. It's quite remarkable to think about, conceptually, what Vadimar brought to us, because we can sort of laugh about him being a French ventriloquist, and I can tell great stories about his performances and his skills at ventriloquism. But what he basically was saying is the culture of the word, the culture of the book, is one that will help everyone improve their lives. And the story is simple. On on one of his trips, he brought 50 books. He presented those 50 books to the mayor of Boston and said, this is a gift from the citizens of Paris. In the great tradition of our of our city, the mayor accepted them and appointed a committee to decide what to do with them. And the result of that committee work was the founding in 1848 of the modern Boston Public Library. Because, of course, Vadimar not only had been convincing, but had brought objects with him that needed a home, that needed to be used, that needed to be put to work. And again, for free. For free. Now, during Vadimar's lifetime, I think he died in the 1860s, he personally, with his family, arranged for the exchange of over a half a million books around the world. In addition to that, he really founded what we call modern scientific exchange, cultural exchange, UNESCO, exchanging not only scientific things around the world, artwork, coins, medals, animal specimens. He really believed in this idea that we were all inhabitants of, a, of this great world, and our success was intertwined. He wrote, I think, the earliest or among the earliest books about American coinage. He was prolific in his ideas and stirring people to action around this. Now, sadly, he basically died in poverty, unknown both in America and in France. There have been books subsequently written, I assume. There have been, actually, a major book has just come out, coincidental with an exhibit that the Boston Public Library has done with the Administrative Library in Paris. And we opened an exhibit in Paris in January 2007, which will open here in Boston in June, in the middle of June. And we're expecting a delegation from the city of Paris and from France to come and join us for that. We should celebrate this man. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a tragedy. I mean, he addressed the joint session of the U.S. Congress. Legislation was passed unanimously by the U.S. Congress. I can't even imagine that today, (laughs) supporting his idea of the exchange of books. He visited dozens of state legislatures where legislation was passed supporting his ideas. He was a world citizen in the sense of seeing a real need and value to promoting what books are all about, and beyond books, the idea of learning. Well, learning and and benefiting the the humankind because of it. 
Yeah. He was an interesting man. He began in his professional life studying to be a doctor. And one of the great stories about him that I, that I love to tell is that uh, in those days in France and lots of other places, when you studied to be a doctor, you, were, you worked in a hospital. And, of course, uh, the rounds in a hospital, particularly for students, begins in the morgue. You know, you look at all the mistakes, I guess, first. <laughs> um, and uh, the hospital that he worked at in Paris, the morgue was in the basement, and they would start in the basement. And not long after he started his work there, the dead bodies began to talk as they did the rounds. And it was quite scary, I guess, to some of his colleagues. Just imagine the visual image of leaning over a corpse and the corpse is talking. Though, obviously, you don't know where the voice really is coming from. I guess it took quite a few months, maybe six or nine months, for them to realize that it was Vatimar who was doing that. It was a practical joke. He was a great ventriloquist. That's what he had sort of grown up being as a, as a child. I mean, he had manifest this in many, many different ways. Of course, when they caught him and figured out it was him, uh, he was fired. And I think, you know, some of those instances of maybe the misuse of his skill, you know, led him to look beyond that in terms of his own personal fulfillment. But what he has spawned in America, I mean, we have 15,000 public libraries in America today, thousands more around the world. You know, built on this concept that it is a a duty of government, a duty. It's a duty of government, but I think one of the things that's most amazing about the United States is that it isn't just government; it's these magnificent philanthropists yes. that you have, yes. uh, like Carnegie and others. Yes. yes. Because without them, you wouldn't have anywhere near the number of libraries that that's, you That's true. Have. That's true. Well, I think you know that's been one of the riveting points that this idea has, in fact found such fertile soil um, not only in America but obviously we're the we're probably the king the king and queen of the library movement but elsewhere and a lot of that has resulted then in people saying I like this idea I want to invest in this idea I want to donate my collections of books my financial resources and certainly the Boston Public Library has benefited from that as have many libraries so what you're saying then is the United States is responsible for the library as we today understand it. Definitely. Definitely. I, I believe history will certainly bear that out in many, many different fronts. I wonder why it didn't take hold in France prior to this. Well, France has always had libraries, but... More, um, more elitist? Or? I, I don't know why. I mean, I don't know if, if it was... I don't know enough about the history of French libraries per se, except my general observation is libraries in America were part of the educational structure in the sense of they were viewed as a way of creating continuing learning, particularly in an environment where we had many immigrants who wouldn't have come through kindergarten and first grade and, and so on in American schools necessarily, but who came to our shores needing additional skills and the library as an invention was a place where people could could continue self-learning I don't see that environment existing say in France or even existing in England in the same way it did here yeah this sense of uh, self-improvement and well, American the self dream. of new people coming to those places yes you know the, to learn English the waves of immigrants in a very different way than what we had here in America so I think part of that 
great, great immigrant tradition fed the importance of library institutions all around America. It fed into the American dream in a way, didn't it? Most definitely. Our certainly earlier, early patriots, you know, identified also, you know, as a basic concept of democracy, that an informed citizenry was the best defense of liberty. And that whole concept, I think, gives America a kind of grounding in what printed and cultural resources, informational resources are all about. You know, our Bill of Rights, our our whole sort of embodiment of laws is built on this idea that information is a beneficial part of how people make decisions about their destiny, rather than leaving information just to a select few to decide for everyone else. Clearly, we have, you know, lots of rich in terms of their material resources libraries in America and elsewhere in the world. Uh, but we're particularly proud in Boston of this really significant legacy, both in our earliest history and with Alexander Vatimar, you know, growing this idea of free to all, of come get rich at your library, come use this resource in a way that will help you be a better contributor to the world, be a better person. Democratic access to information. Yes. So... From there, the library prospered. Any significant events along the way up until the Internet, which is what we, we want, where we want to go with this? Well, I think there's tons of events along the way, obviously buildings and services uh, of all sorts. You know, We were the first library to have a newspaper room. We were the first library to have a branch library. We were the first library to have a separate room for children. Um, our McKim building, built uh, in a, opened in 1895, was the largest public works prog- project, you know, to, up to its time. Now, are you going to get any argument from the New York Public Library? Well, we might get argument, but they came after us. Paul Leclerc and his people do a remarkably good job, so I, I know I won't I won't argue with them, but they may argue with us. We're it's you know the Red Sox and Yankees, you know, get played out. I mean, this is Red Sox Nation, and of course we have the best team in baseball, so we we have to remind the New Yorkers about that occasionally. Well, as a tourist, it's impossible for me to go and see the game because they're always sold out. Yeah, I think yeah. there's something <laughs> like 200 games in a row now that have been sold out. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's, uh, well, we have a, we have a great team, and it's it's fun. And actually, we have a collaboration with the Red Sox. We've just published a book uh, with them using photographic resources from the library. I believe it's tomorrow we're doing a big book signing at Fenway Park uh, around that book. But uh, we we have fun with with a healthy competition on many, many different levels. As as we say, we we loved, we loved to hate the Yankees. (laughs) Well, without competition, it doesn't push you, does it? That's right. You've got to, it's fun to hate someone. Right. (laughs) In a nonviolent sort of way. Right. Yeah. So aside from the buildings and, uh, well, lots of innovations, the sort of philosophical grounding of the organization hasn't really changed. It hasn't. I mean, our trustees laid out for us in, in their first, in, actually in 1852, the document was published of their sort of first concept of what we were to be as a public library. That document is used in library schools today still to, to give direction and, uh, to students. And 
The trustees told us at first that we should collect four kinds of things. We should collect the valuable, expensive, rare books that no one individually could afford to purchase. And so if we sort of bought them once and shared them collectively, there was some significant efficiency to that. Trustees directed us to buy popular books and to buy as many copies of those as was required to meet the demand. And when the demand then diminished, to sell the excess and buy more popular books. Uh, the trustees directed us to buy obscure things that would have little interest today, knowing that 100 years from now, those would be enormously important to scholars and researchers. The trustees directed that we not buy newspapers, that we could collect newspapers if they were donated. Now, the context of that was in the 1840s, I think at one time we had 24 daily newspapers. We couldn't <laughs> afford to buy newspapers. And they were mainly advertisement, you know, for advertisements because there was no other medium for or merchants. Or political. Or political, right. Yeah. And the irony is that we still get the Boston Globe free, <laughs> and we have a huge remarkable collection of early newspapers that were in fact donated to us and uh, form an amazingly rich resource for people to study not only Boston history and Massachusetts history but American and world history because they are such a such an amazing uh, treasure trove of information. There's a bit of controversy around that. I know Nichol Nicholson Baker has written yeah, about the yeah, Nick is, yeah. necessity of keeping the originals as opposed to... Uh, right. And we're with him. We have we have originals, even if we've microfilmed them or even if they've been digitized and are online. We do believe in, in the originals. We believe in materials in its original form. We think that's very important to scholarship. Can every library afford to keep them? No. Yeah, just from the pure uh, standpoint right. of storage. Right, so I, I, think, I think, exactly, I think Nick Baker's uh, concept is right on the mark, but I think the issue is how do, we, how do we deploy our resources in a really thoughtful way. Not every library can afford to keep their newspapers, yeah. but somebody needs to keep their newspapers. And as long as the information is on file, then why have all this newsprint hanging around? Right, right, but you still need the original in some, some way. The question, well, because the question I think, is why. Well, I think in the case of newspapers, first of all, most of the microfilming projects that were undertaken for newspapers didn't film any of the advertisements. Which is a fascinating thing in itself. And the document of what a newspaper is, is its presentation yeah. as well as its content. The choice of all where of you put content. things. Yeah. So, I mean, we laugh about classified ads today. Obviously, Craigslist is the modern classified ad tool, right? But classified ads are an enormous microscope on American culture. What people are buying, what people are selling, what people are doing occupationally, what people are driving home in or not driving home in, where people are living, where they're vacationing, all the things that are, you know, part of, part of that world, mm -hmm. our world, are captured in the classified ads of all places. But now that's not a problem, though, because we're scanning everything. Right? Well, from now on we are. But, but, but the there was a period. But yeah. the historical record doesn't necessarily reflect that. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, the online newspapers today bear no relationship in any ways to what the paper is that I get at my door in the morning. Sure, it may be the same content. Presentation is different. Its access points are different. Its graphics are different. So how do we capture that? Now, one of the new inventions, it's not that new, 
I'll give you some context. I've been at the Boston Public Library a little over 10 years. When I started, we were averaging 3,000 or so hits to our website every month. Now we average over 12 million hits a month to our website. In a decade of time, we have now more people, or just on the cusp actually, more people visiting us online than visiting any of our 27 branches. So a remarkable change. Now, with that, our business is booming of people visiting us. Our circulation, traditional people borrowing books and taking them home, is hitting record highs. Again, it gets back to your, your point about capacity. and Exactly. The shelf is getting bigger. It's not closing out anything. And I think actually, while you, know, you can read and, and hear people discuss the, the doom, doom and gloom around the book, I think the evidence is pretty clear that books are alive and well. They're changing, like everything in the world does. And I think some things that we might have been used to in book form doesn't happen today. I mean, I remember I grew up in a family where we knew that we had to buy a New World Almanac. We bought a New World Almanac every year. And I remember the the family discussions because they were two big competitors, you know, which is better. You know, and we buy the World Almanac because it was a tool that you had to have, a trivia book, really. And one of the things about it is it was published every year. It had a level of currency that was really pretty unique to publications of the, of the time. Well, who needs a World Almanac today? You can get anything that you would have ever dreamed of getting from the World Almanac online. Click of the finger, you know, instantaneous. Yeah, um, as long as you're aware of the source. Well, the source in the World Almanac was no more reliable or less reliable than what pro- we probably would get online from Wikipedia or anywhere else. You know, that's just an example of one book that, that is disappearing, and that's okay. Well, book publishing is booming. You know, we still, I think, are publishing over 50,000 new titles in America. The Brits are publishing, I don't know, another 40 or 50,000. The Japanese, I think, 75,000 titles. There's lots of publishing of books. Now, they're morphing, you know, there's graphic novels and there's different content things than what we may be used to, and there's more pop-up books and there's... There's books based on websites. Exactly. There's more touch and feel and other kinds of things to books than there maybe have been historically. So it's evolving, but it's still a book. Mm -hmm. Still pretty basic to that. Um, And, you know, I think it's a case of the book isn't dying, we're fine-tuning how books are, are used. I don't think I will this summer, if I go to a beach on Cape Cod, see anybody, maybe isolated, anybody reading uh, a popular mystery novel laying on the beach, other than in book form. And there have been several attempts, uh, you know, as I'm, I know you're well aware, of trying to create a portable electronic book, and they're all gone. I actually have been collecting a few examples of them. Sony has just launched, launched a new one. It's the Iliad in, in England, which yeah. apparently is quite good. Okay, well, that may be a case. I don't know how many millions of them there are. I doubt that it's <laughs> millions of them, so we, we, we can laugh about that. But, I, you know, I think the point is, and at some point there may, this may change, there may be a more viable electronic option I think there will for, be. for books. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that with all the instant messaging and all the capacity changes that are happening with the iPods and the MP3s and so on, that the book still hasn't morphed, which suggests to me that it is an invention that has a level of durability that, that is unparalleled. 
you know, that we shouldn't uh, ignore the reality that it still is portable. It can go almost anywhere. It doesn't need to be fed. It doesn't need any batteries. It doesn't need any power other than someone, really need someone to, be protected someone either, to turn the page. It, it yeah. needs minimum protection. Yeah. You can throw it around. Um, it, it can be used under all kinds of different environmental conditions and light conditions. You can even use it in the dark if your eyesight is good. Can't use it uh, in a bathtub yet, no. Uh, some people do. If you buy one of those racks, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not underwater you can, maybe. But uh, it is it is an invention that is really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And it has changed. I mean, the way we bind books and the way we print books and the way we compose. And, you know, one of the first in this library's history, I didn't mention in the earlier list, is we were the first... Uh, library have a linotype machine because we used to print some of our own books. I mean, linotype machines. I mean, they are they are dinosaurs. You know, they exist in museums. Gone. I mean, the way we print books completely changed. You or I could print a book, maybe not in our bathtub, but close to our bathtub today. You can print a book on a home PC. You can you know, you can create a book in many many different ways that will look like a book. It'll look professional and sharp and graphically have a level of integrity that presents itself as a book. That's pretty new as a, as a concept, as an, as an invention. But the book is alive and well. As it's applied in the library, the book is still quite viable. People are checking them out, taking them home, reading them, using them, hopefully returning them. Bernard Margolis, the president of the Boston Public Library, just in closing, I wonder if we could uh, tie what's going on with Google and others who are scanning information at incredible rates to the original concept of the the modern library, uh, because Google is using that argument to defend what they're doing, namely to make huge amounts of information accessible in ways that has never been available in the past to all sorts of huge audiences around the world. What's your take on what Google is doing? Where do you think it's going? Let me take a step back because I don't want to, I want to give Brewster Kale, who is the man who invented the idea of the Internet Archive and an offshoot called the Open Content Alliance. Another wonderful uh, philanthropist. Yes, I want to give him more of the credit because Google gets a lot of the limelight, but Brewster Kale had this vision, much like Vatimar, much like that ventriloquist, had this vision. He said to himself, if I go to OCLC, which is the organization that has sort of grouped all the cataloging information for all the books in America and actually lots of the rest of the world now, I think OCLC has something like 80 million unique book records, 80 million books. You know, and I could picture Brewster on the back of an envelope doing the calculations. What would it cost to convert 80 million books into the digital world? To photograph, to convert all those pages, all those documents, all that information into the virtual world. Uh, for free. For free. For free. Right. Which is, but, which but, is but where, where they part company. Exactly. Well, that, but his initial idea was just to do it. How, how could we get it done? Could it be doable? And then to add to books, you know, all the videos and all the sound recordings and, you know, all the newspapers and et cetera, et cetera. And as he's doing the calculations on the back of his envelope, sort of realizing, you know, maybe at 10 cents a page, maybe this is a doable task. Maybe we don't have to say 
that we're only going to get this kind of content going forward, that we could go backwards and capture all of this. And beginning, as he has done, to roll out this idea, which I think Google and others have sort of latched on to in terms of saying what can drive traffic to the Internet from the Google standpoint, from, I think, Brewster's standpoint, what can enrich the world, what can improve the world. And today, not only do we have Google, but we have Microsoft, yeah. and we have the Open Content Alliance, and we have Gutenberg. the wonderful Gutenberg and Muse and the Sloan Foundation are, have been just fantastic in supporting initiatives and the Institute of Museum and Library Services now funding some digitization activities. It's just remarkable how this is growing. Now institutions, including some here in Boston, saying, can we tax ourselves and say we're going to devote X portions of our budget to digitization efforts to speed up this task of converting these traditional book resources into things available online. I think what it will do, again, I don't think it will diminish the value of books. What it does is increases the resourcefulness of everyone by having much more information available in a way that it can be crossed, referenced, looked at, reviewed, overlaid. So today, if I was a scientist researcher and I wanted all the information on proton theory, I'd have to march around to different places. The idea of being able to integrate that and then having tools that I can use online to narrow my search, to collect disparate things together, to maybe create a new theory, a new idea. Oh, yeah. But I guess invention. The, where the rubber hits the road is, is this going to be free or not? Well, that's a big issue. We, we've had uh, lots of internal uh, discussions about this. We have not signed on to Google as of yet, that we are, have, have had some very serious discussions with them because we're concerned about how we take a public resource, which is ours, paid for and supported by our citizens, and in any way restrict access to it. The balance here, though, is a difficult one. Right now, the only access that people have to many of these resources is to come here. That's a burden. That's a limitation. So, so if we can even open the door a little bit to improved access to our own constituencies, is that not better? than the most restrictive context, which is what we have today. So we're carefully weighing this. We don't like the idea that the materials are only searchable via a Google search. We wish that were opened up. But we also live in a world where the changes are so rapid in this world, in this virtual world. You know, Google could announce tomorrow that it's going to change that restriction. Or somebody could invent some kind of new super search engine that trumps all of that. And there are companies now being, who are working on the idea of a super search, that you could search right. Yahoo and MSN and Google and 10 others all at the same time. Well, that way you circumvent these companies putting advertising beside all of the stuff they've got. And, but what you have to do now, I guess, is that Microsoft and Google, for example, will have X amount of information that is available because they've scanned it. That's on both right. It, but they're not the same. You have to do two searches That's right. or three searches. That's right. That's Which right. Which is inefficient. Which is enormously inefficient. 
it's more efficient than what we have now, but it isn't the ideal. It's, a, it's only a stepping stone to that ideal. Part of the weighing is how do we justify whatever position we move to? Because clearly the Google project is improved access. There's no question about it. And our citizens require that, need that. And is it free for all? Well, in our measure, that's a very, very critical element for us to look at. Now, with that said, we're looking for wherever we can get resources to digitize collections. We've gotten a grant now to digitize most of the John Adams Presidential Library that we have. We're working on, with the University of Maryland uh, on a grant where we'll be digitizing some of our children's, some of our early children's materials. So we're looking for those resources because we do, in fact, see the conversion of these things from books on shelves to the virtual world really will help that concept of free to all, will help that Vatimirian concept of sharing these resources to improve the world. Well, I think that's probably a pretty good place for us to uh, sit back and contemplate what you've told us. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for uh, spending it with me. I've been talking to Bernard Margolis, who's the president of the Boston Public Library.